Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. So, is creation a miracle, or is it a myth? It's inescapable that all naturalists, or all materialists, or atheists, who believe that all there is is matter and energy and physical laws, have to believe in chemical evolution, which is the origin of life from non-life. Now, we've discussed this topic before. About four years ago, I even had a theistic evolutionist biology professor, a Christian, teaching at a Christian college, claim that we were making good progress on abiogenesis, this origin of life from non-life. Of course, when I asked for details, I didn't get any. So let's look for some details for ourselves from an October 2013 blog at Uncommon Descent titled, Origin of Life, How Are We Doing? According to well-known origin of life researcher Eugene Conan, 2012, so quite recent, Conan wrote, However, the origin of life, or to be more precise, the origin of the first replicator systems and the origin of translation, remains a huge enigma, and progress in solving these problems has been very modest, in the case of translation, nearly negligible. Some potentially fruitful observations and ideas exist, such as the discovery of plausible hatcheries for life, the networks of inorganic compartments at hydrothermal vents, and the chemical versatility of ribozymes that fuels the RNA world hypothesis. However, these advances remain only preliminaries, even if important ones, because they do not even come close to a coherent scenario for pre-biological evolution. From the first organic molecules to the first replicator systems, and from these to bona fide biological entities in which information storage and function are partitioned between distinct classes of molecules, nucleic acids and proteins, respectively. In my view, all advances notwithstanding, evolutionary biology is and will remain woefully incomplete until there is at least a plausible, even if not compelling, origin of life scenario. The search for such a solution to the ultimate enigma may take us in unexpected and deeply counterintuitive for biologists' directions, particularly toward a complete reassessment of the relevant concepts of randomness, probability, and the possible contribution of extremely rare events, as exemplified by the cosmological perspective given in Chapter 12. And this is from his 2012 book, The Logic of Chance, The Nature and Origin of Biological Evolution. And as noted at Uncommon Descent, he'll settle for something, quote, plausible, even if not compelling, end quote, and he can't even get that. So what does he advocate? Punting. He points to multiverses as a solution. Export the problem to an infinite number of entities for which there is no evidence, and it pretty well disappears. It's the other losses, reason, logic, respect for evidence, that concern some of us, as well said over at Uncommon Descent. Once again, methodological naturalism slams its head against the wall of facts and observations. (music) 
So just remember that despite any claims you may hear out there, abiogenesis, life from non-life, is not even remotely close to any plausible solution whatsoever. And now for something completely different. The past couple of shows we were looking at issues in geology, that despite the standard view, things happen very fast. We looked at the island of Circe, which looked millions of years old when it was really young, and we discussed the fact that, despite complete dominance, the standard geology can't explain large landforms like mountain ranges and planation surface because they clearly exhibit larger forces than those involved in operating today. We further spoke about bent strata that appear to have been deformed while still soft and plastic, and yet were supposedly in existence for millions and millions of years before they were bent. The problem is the time scale. The physical evidence is completely consistent with recently deposited, still soft sediments being bent radically. Well, let's discuss the fundamental issue that's going on here from a book, Flood by Design, by Michael Ord. Why do geomorphologists experience such difficulty explaining so many landforms? Surely there has been no shortage of effort, money, or time. After all, landforms and the processes acting on them are easily observed. I propose that the main problem is their key assumption, uniformitarianism. Geomorphologists generally assume that present rates of weathering, river erosion, transport, and deposition can account for all Earth's surface features. All they need is enough time. Until the late 18th century, most people believed that the sedimentary rocks and fossils were laid down and shaped primarily by Noah's flood. With the advent of the Enlightenment, men began to look for explanations independent of the Bible. The study of rocks and fossils was strongly affected by the Enlightenment, and as a result, Noah's flood was rejected, not because of factual data or superior reasoning, but because the biblical account fell out of favor with the intellectual elite. At first, it was replaced with a series of catastrophes, but soon the doctrine of uniformitarianism came to dominate geology, and this core principle did not allow even the possibility of Noah's flood. Thus, the flood was rejected in favor of a mental construct, the result of choice. It's worth noting that all of this happened before there was much knowledge about rocks or fossils. Geology was poorly developed at the time. But history now shows that the uniformitarian assumption has explained little about the Earth's surface or sedimentary rocks, layered rocks that were laid down in water and hardened. Smith et al. admitted, quote, that present-day landscape cannot be explained solely in terms of current processes or even those that operated in the geologically recent past, end quote. Furthermore, many landforms are in the process of being destroyed by present processes. They are not forming today. Green in 1980 concluded, quote, the most far-reaching implication arises from the recognition that almost all landforms are relics and have not been shaped only, or even largely, by present-day processes. In other words, a powerful variable in the present-day geomorphological system is the relief inherited from the past and often shaped in environmental conditions very different from those of the present. End quote. Relic 
means the landform is not forming today, but is being destroyed. Relief is the difference between the high and low points in the terrain. And to top it off, geomorphologists admit that the landscapes of the world were eroded and shaped by water. The Australian geomorphologist C.R. Twydale in 1996 stated, Water is the critical factor in landform evolution on Earth. So uniformitarian geomorphologists have had to concede that some past unobservable process involving water carved the landscapes of the world. Increasingly, miniature catastrophes are being invoked, but the scope of these landforms suggests something much larger. Well, it's pretty clear that to anyone who hasn't already ruled it out based upon their worldview, all of this data points to the Genesis Flood. And from one perspective, it's not surprising that this is ignored. Second Peter chapter 3, discussing the future in which skeptics would come, scoffers it's called, Peter wrote, They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. Well, Peter certainly got that right. Scoffers today certainly deny the creation. The references to Genesis 1 are obvious. And they deny the global flood. Why do they do this? Peter continues, And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So if someone wants to ignore God and pretend there is no future judgment, then they must deny the creation and they must deny the flood. But having denied the creation and the flood, they're stuck with an inability to explain the observations of the world around us, such as the landforms we've been talking about. Oh, and don't forget, there's also no explanation for life itself. Let's think about for a few minutes a rather amazing structure, used to be called Ayers Rock, and it's now called Uluru, U-L-U-R-U, which was the original Aborigines name for it. Hopefully you've seen pictures of this. I'll post some on my website as well. Visually, it's an enormous red rock sticking up out of a gigantic plane, a very flat plane all around it. While this is a very dramatic example, this type of structure is actually fairly common. They're often called inselbergs, and you have this erosional remnant sticking up above a completely flat plain that was heavily eroded. Often, the inselberg is granite-type rock, which is very hard, but the Ayers Rock in central Australia is a famous non-granitic inselberg. It's composed of vertically tilted beds of sandstone. They've been tilted 85 degrees. They're almost completely vertical. It stands over 1,100 feet above the surrounding flat desert floor. Ayers Rock is the surface erosional remnant of a huge sandstone body 20,000 feet thick that continues into the subsurface. The origin of Ayers Rock, as well as other Inselbergs, remains a mystery within uniformitarian geology. Since its survival from erosion was not due to the type of rock, Twydale in 1978 wrote, 
the early geomorphological history and the fundamental reasons for Ayers Rock remain obscure, though various possibilities have been suggested. So here's another piece of geological evidence sitting right in front of us that is completely unexplained by the standard geological approach. Now I want you to picture Ayers Rock, or Uluru, standing above this plain, 1,100 plus feet tall, an enormous flat desert plain all around it. And now picture the fact that the entire plain had sediment higher than the existing Ayers Rock. And all of that has eroded away. Massive erosion. And yet it happened in such a way that Ayers Rock was not eroded away. Now, very often, vertical faces, like the rock sticking up, will erode faster than horizontal strata. And yet, there it sits. However, just try to picture what a global flood might do. Just imagine the kind of erosion that would occur with the ocean waters completely covering the continents. Vast erosion and vast amounts of sediment deposited. And then imagine what would happen as the continents raised up and or the ocean basins drop down and the water level recedes off the continents. There would be massive amounts of sheet erosion, huge amounts of water moving horizontally across the continents and spilling into the oceans, and eroding sediments which had only been laid down during the previous year, so they were still soft and unconsolidated. Additionally, all the continental movements and folding that would go on would explain the bent strata. And it's also interesting that the continental shelves are covered with deep sediments, and there's no ongoing present-day process that explains where all of that sediment came from. It's easy to picture it running off the continent and being deposited in the water nearby, isn't it? Let's continue thinking for a minute about what we would expect to find if the Genesis Flood were a real event. Many flood geologists think that the mountains rose up and valleys and ocean floors sunk down during the recessive part of the flood. That is, as the flood was ending and the water was leaving the continents, a period of time that took many, many weeks. So if this really happened, you'd expect that these floodwaters would flow off the continents as sheets and that you would have sheet erosion tearing up sediments and land and depositing it along the continental margin. And we'd expect to find gravel and boulders dropped a long way from their source. Well, we mentioned planation surfaces earlier. Let's get a definition of that from the Dictionary of Geological Terms. It is, quote, a land surface shaped and subdued by the action of erosion, especially by running water. The term is generally applied to a level or nearly level surface. And when you look at landforms from a distance, you can find these fascinating level tops to plateaus, which are themselves sitting above a level plain. And when examined closely, there's often both hard and soft sedimentary layers which were carved through the same, which implies a rapid rate of severe erosion. When water erosion occurs more slowly, it always erodes soft sediment more than hard sediment. Well, these planation surfaces are common and worldwide. They're found on the tops of plateaus, on plains, in flat-bottom valleys, and even on mountaintops. For instance, the high plains of Montana and adjacent Canada generally show four planation surfaces at different altitudes. 
The highest one is on the high plains in the Cypress Hills, named after several large erosional remnants located in southeast Alberta and southwest Saskatchewan, Canada. The surface is flat and capped with about 75 feet of well-rounded quartzites from west of the Continental Divide, a distance of more than 250 miles. The planation surface once covered an area of over a 1,000 square miles before being dissected by late flood, channelized erosion, or post-flood Ice Age rivers. One of the most interesting-looking types of planation surface is when it occurs on the tops of a mountain range. If you look at the Beartooth Mountains in south-central Montana, you'll see planation surfaces carving off the tops of the mountains absolutely flat and occurring at different elevations. So you can see the evidence of severe sheet erosion leveling off the top of the mountain as it's being faulted and lifted up during the recession stages of the flood and post-flood time. There's certainly nothing going on today that would level off the top of mountains like this. Michael Ord's book has some great pictures of these Beartooth Mountains. It's quite dramatic. I'll see if I can post a couple on my website as well. So let's take one last look for now at the standard geological explanation for how these occurred. Renowned maverick geomorphologist C.H. Crickmay in 1974 wrote, Such landscape as flat-topped hills or high plateaus show no process in action that might favor or maintain its flatness. Consequently, one cannot say that any geological work now observable has made it as flat and level as it is. The completion of its flattening appears to have been in the past. The very existence of much flat, near-level ground at all elevations demonstrates not only its extensive forming, but also its long survival. In 1991, Ollier corroborated, It is very difficult to know how plains were originally created, but they can undoubtedly be seen in the landscape. Ollier and Payne in 2000 further marveled at how such planation could have occurred at all or been so widespread. Quote, The remarkable thing is that planes of great perfection are ever made, despite all the obvious possibilities of complications. But they are real, and planation surfaces were widespread before the uplift of the many mountains of Pleistocene age, that's very late Cenozoic. So in other words, planation surfaces are common at all altitudes and are not forming today. They were once much larger before uplifting mountains and erosion destroyed much of the surface. And furthermore, these planation surfaces are being actively destroyed today. This is another very obvious instance in which the present is not the key to the past. However, the global flood is. Well, let's leave the world of geology for now and take a look at the story of human evolution. Casey Luskin over at Evolution News provided coverage of the skull that rewrites the story of human evolution again. On what seems like a surprisingly regular basis, a new fossil turns up that rewrites the story of human evolution. According to news reports, the discovery of skulls thought to represent a member of early Homo at an excavation in Damasi, Georgia, promises to do just that. As NBC News says, quote, Specimens that supposedly represent several early human species might be merely different-sized individuals from the same species. If the conclusion holds up, the skull discovery could require a major rewrite for the story of early human evolution. End quote. 
So what exactly did they find? According to its discoverers, this is the skull of a previously known species, Homo erectus, from a time period when we already knew the species existed. The specimens of five individuals found in underground animal lairs, where they were evidently eaten, would represent the oldest members of Homo found outside of Africa. But as far as morphology and timing goes, the fossils contribute very little that's new to the spotty standard account of human evolution. The only reason this is making headlines is because the researchers found a few skulls in a single location and they think they can assign them all to the same species. This excites evolutionary paleoanthropologists since usually the evidence is so sketchy you don't even know how closely different fossils are related. Now, of course, not everybody agrees that they all represent one species. Okay, so what's really going on here? Well, the fact is, take a look at living people today. Take a look at the amount of variation there is among humans alive on the planet today. Consider giant Norwegian powerlifters and short aboriginal hunters. They look rather different, don't they? And then I'm a skinny, balding, six-footer with a fairly prominent brow whose skull, if it were found in the right place, would probably be called Neanderthal. So the range of variation can be rather large within a single species. But as an anthropologist, you don't make headlines and get grant money by discovering another one of something we already have. So there's been great pressure to consider virtually every new find as a new species and, and of course, an important one in the story of human evolution. What you really want to do is to find the oldest of something or an intermediate form of something. Then you can get published in headlines. Well, creationists have been talking about this issue for decades. This latest skull find is assigned to Homo erectus, and in 1994, in the Journal of Creation, there was an article discussing the supposed Homo erectus to modern man evolution, or is it really just human variability? It says there are literally thousands of hominid fossils in existence, and of these, over 300 are classified as either Neanderthal or erectus. We have a large enough sample to be certain about the accuracy of the diagnostic features of all groups. Admittedly, taxonomic names count for less than the actual morphological structures of the various human races, past and present. But from an evolutionary viewpoint, the small degree of change in erectus populations over an alleged period of one and a quarter million years must be disappointing, especially if the cranial capacities of the earliest and latest examples all lie within the modern range of humans. Discussing the difference between these first and last erectus specimens, Pellegrino wrote in 1985, there are no major morphological excursions. Merely a thicker brow ridge here, a subtle variation of tooth structure there, and not much else. It looks as if a substantial stretch of human evolution was characterized not by change, but by stasis. You see, the story of human evolution is often in the eye of the beholder. Nineteen years ago, several researchers were, quote, proposing nothing less than the complete abolition of Homo erectus on the grounds that the species is insufficiently distinct from Homo sapiens. All fossil specimens of Homo erectus and archaic Homo sapiens, including Neanderthals, should be reclassified into a single species, Homo sapiens, and subdivided only into races. And Alan Thorne of the Australian National University wrote, the fossil record reveals that the features possessed by the early hominids who lived in Europe, Asia, and Africa have exactly the same sort of range as those we see in modern people. The truth is that once you consider the range that exists in modern humans right now, the supposed evidence for human evolution simply disappears. 
Growing up reading National Geographic and looking back on it, I've marveled often at how tiny little differences between skulls were used to insist these were completely separate creatures. And of course, the story of human evolution continues to change. The players come and go, the story changes every decade or so. I've got three boys, and they range from, oh, about 6'1", 150 pounds, to about 6'3", or 6'4", and maybe 280, 290. And they have very different builds. Are they different species, or are they brothers? The fact is, you can't get away from your presuppositions when you interpret the evidence around you. As a creationist who believes in the biblical flood, it's very easy for me to see physical evidence for it in planation surfaces, in the tops of mountains eroded completely flat, in quartzite boulders deposited hundreds of miles away from their source, etc. Don't rule out the biblical worldview without careful investigation. You could miss something amazing. See creation, myth or miracle.com.